Hi, I'm Tim Johnson with Central Illinois Pinnacle Forum. And the following is a sermon from a series over Paul's letter to the Philippians delivered by Pastor Randy Bowlinghouse, a friend of Pinnacle Forum, of Windsor Road Christian Church. This sermon series is the foundation from which we have developed Pinnacle Forum's Spring Forum Study Series with the permission and participation from Pastor Bowlinghouse. Our series title is Next Dimension Leadership, Finding Joy, or Joy in Leadership, How to Know if You've Lost It and How to Get It Back. Here's Randy in the second sermon in the Philippians series entitled Joy in Unstoppable Truth from Philippians 1, 12 to 26. Well, good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles, uh, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Philippians. The New Testament book of Philippians, you'll find that on page 980 of your church Bibles. They're the Bibles that are in the pouch in front of you. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word uh, as your own, please feel free to uh, take that if you're a guest here uh, and uh, put your name in it. Take it home as a, a gift from our church family. We're in a series over... Paul's letter to the Philippians, and our scripture reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us so much to give us your beloved son. Thank you that he came and rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, put us in your kingdom, 
your kingdom of light and love and hope. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is shared among this church family. And thank you for your word. And now feed us. Oh God, remove me. Get me out of the way so that what you want said gets said so that we would see the face of Jesus and know that he is life. He who has the Son has the life. In his name we pray. God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, apparently, there's not enough reality TV shows. So this fall, Oxygen Media, are you familiar with Oxygen Media? Are you familiar with the Oxygen Channel? Yes? Okay, there we go. Well, Oxygen is going to have one more on the docket. And it's called, I'm not making this up, Preachers of L.A. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Located in that sunny fruit and nut state of our glorious union, (laughs) Preachers of L.A. showcases the good and the bad and the ugly of six Los Angeles mega church pastors. Let's watch the trailer. Forgive us of every sin, sins of omission, sins of commission in the name of Jesus. Every chain can be broken. Every shackle can be broken. You're part of the family of God. God, we ask and we believe for your healing power and grace to touch his body and make him whole. Just by here, say, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. Forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for my sins. I believe in my heart. I believe in my heart. That Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ. Died for my sins. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I'm saved. I'm saved. My name is Bishop Ron Gibson. I'm Bishop Clarence E. McClendon. My name is Dietrich Haddon. I'm Wayne Cheney. My name is Jay Hazlip. My name is Noel Jones. The Bible says that I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. I believe that. P. Diddy, Jay-Z, they're not the only ones who should be driving Ferraris and living in large houses. The Bible says that those who sow among us should reap from us. That's implying that the preacher is to be taken care of. I like being successful. Security is a necessary part of what we do. Being a pastor is very dangerous because you have to be perfect at all times. People put you up on a pedestal that you can't live on. Pastors are people just like everybody else. It's all about truth for me from this point on. The truth about my baby out of wedlock, the truth about my divorce, it happened. There's nothing I can do about that. I'm a pastor, but at the end of the day, I'm a man. 
Does it ever get to a place where it's really not about love, but it's about winning? Winning what? Winning a, a man or a relationship? No, winning me. I, winning me. You're not a prize. I am a prize. <laughs> That's right. Maybe I don't love you as much as you love me. Maybe you don't. And maybe I don't love you as much as you think I love you. I'm trying my best to balance it all. And just when you think you haven't managed, let's get through this, man. If we plan on having more children, I want to be married. We have more than you, a relationship like I'm your part of your, your congregation. I'm not. Don't pastor me. Best part of my job is helping hurting people. You're going to be who God called you to be. You're a leader. I didn't think it could be, young brothers, until it happened to me. My life has changed. Living in the streets, dodging bullets, that's the low life. There's a life, brothers, where you can be free. I believe that no one is beyond redemption. What I really love about being a pastor is seeing people's lives change. Everywhere I go, I try to influence people. I try to help them. At the end of the day, this is what I was made to do. It was really the pulpit I was coveting. Is that a pulpit or not? That pulpit is on steroids, man. That is... Oh, my goodness. Where do we begin? Now, for the record, I have a 10-year-old Grand Marquis. Uh, and uh, anyway, and uh, nobody in my family likes to drive it because it's just this big boat. And it's got a huge trunk. It could fit all, all six of those guys could fit in that trunk, you know, <laughs> along, along with my golf clubs. And, uh, but, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, I mean, okay, first the encouragements. I'm, I was right on with the statement, you know, I really believe no one's beyond redemption. Okay. I'm in, I, I am in for that. I'm okay. Good. And the calling, I, I'm into that. Here are a few of my concerns. Now, um, <laughs> let's start, let's start with the quote, being a pastor is very dangerous because you have to be perfect at all times. Really? Really? I, I mean, I hope not. I've never felt that. I've never felt that you know, expectation from you, and I'm grateful for that. Um, at the same time, I think you would appreciate it if I didn't father a baby out of wedlock. I mean, I just, you know, and it, you know, it, I could, I might say to the elders, well, at the end of the day, I'm a man, but if I did that, they would say to me, well, at the end of the day, you're an unemployed man. We, you know, we, <laughs> you can still worship here, but, you know, um, and uh, then, and, 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 and what about that, um, you know, this God wants you to prosper quote from 3 John verse 2. Uh, I mean, no, that's just not right. It's not. I mean, 3 John verse 2 is just a standard, courteous, hi, how you doing in first century letter writing. And you, it takes a lot of fancy tap dancing to derive a doctrine of prosperity from 3 John verse 2. I mean, I just, I just want to sit 
the, those preachers of L.A. down and go, what are you guys thinking? What's going on? Why would you volunteer for this? How, how much are they paying you? Really, come on, tell me. I mean, you know, I mean, and then there's the producers. The producers, like, uh, you know, do, do you think we're stupid? Is that it? Do you just think we're stupid? I mean, do you think that we can't figure out how intentionally provocative this is? And, 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 and do you think we don't know that everything we're seeing on camera is what you want us to see? Really? And, 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 then, and then my neighbors. I can just picture some of my neighbors in Clark Park watching this and then putting putting me in the trunk with those guys. And, you know, you preachers are all alike. You know, I just, I'm on tilt. And I've just seen the trailer. (laughs) And, and, having read our scripture today from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, I think the Apostle Paul would be far more generous than I'm being. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Yes, he would acknowledge mischievous motives and ego-driven rivalries. You heard that. But when you heard these verses... What did you hear is Paul's chief concern. It's not, well, look how they're making me look, and, you know, and, and, and Paul's not even going there. He's, he's not interested in going there. Remember in Philippians 1, verse 1, Paul self-identifies as a slave, and you can't get any lower than a slave in Philippi, which is a status-conscious patriotic colony in Rome. Paul's issues aren't with them. Or even himself. What are Paul's issues? What's his driving concern? The gospel. The gospel. What's the gospel doing? Is the gospel making progress? Is the gospel advancing? Is the gospel getting out and getting into people's lives? That's what matters. Is there progress? Yes or no? In fact, you could say that the word progress is what drives uh, this entire unit of thought in Philippians 1, verses 12 through 26. These verses are all about progress, gospel progress, unstoppable gospel progress. In fact, verse 12 begins with, with the word progress. Now, The New Testament comes to us by way of the Greek language. And so the word for progress in our church Bibles is actually the word advance. What's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You could have easily have translated that. What's happened to me has really served for the progress of the gospel. So this unit of thought begins with the word progress and actually it concludes this unit of thought with the word progress in verse 25, Paul says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress. It's beginning and ending, progress bookends this unit of thought. Paul's trying to tell the Philippians that even in the middle of undesirable circumstances and even among the most obnoxious people, the gospel is making unstoppable progress. And I want us to unpack that as we look at these verses. We're going to see how the gospel's making unstoppable progress. And then I want us to see why the gospel is making 
unstoppable progress. How and why? First, the how. Well, that takes us back to verse 12, where Paul says, I want you to know that what has happened has really served for the progress to advance the gospel. Well, what has happened? What's going on here? Well, what's going on is that when the Apostle Paul came to Philippi, this Roman colony, this miniature of the mother city, he started a congregation. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. And uh, the first three charter members were uh, Lydia, this uh, high-end wealthy fabric trader, uh, purple cloth. Uh, There was this unnamed uh, slave girl who had been possessed by a spirit of divination. And then there was this crusty jailer and his family. So talk about a diverse congregation and backgrounds and heritages. Paul was persecuted in Philippi, and then after the city officials tortured him, they discovered that he was a Roman citizen, and they had seriously violated his civil rights, but the Christians learned something about Paul, that he was not willing to put his allegiance to Rome ahead of his allegiance to Christ, so he waived his rights as a Roman citizen, and instead, he showed the Philippian Christians where his true colors were. His loyalties were with Jesus. And he was willing to suffer for citizenship in Jesus' kingdom. And when they saw him do that, oh man, he's the real deal. And their faith grew. And Paul didn't stay very long in Philippi. He left, uh, but they continued to grow in Christ. And Paul traveled to other places and started other churches. And he kept in touch with this congregation. Theirs was a special relationship. And about 10 years later, in Acts chapter 28, Paul finds himself in prison in the city of Rome He's under house arrest for preaching the gospel, and he's chained to a Roman guard. Now, in that day, when someone went to prison or was a prisoner, their captors would not provide the necessities, food, shelter. Now, if that prisoner was to survive, it was going to be because of a support group. And so when the Philippians heard that Paul was in prison as a prisoner under house arrest... They sent Epaphroditus, who was a leader in that church in Philippi. We'll read about him in Philippians chapter 2. They sent a very generous financial gift with Epaphroditus. He traveled to Rome to give it to Paul, to help Paul. They were concerned. Paul, what's happened? They want to know what's going on. They had a gospel partnership going on. They wanted to see the gospel make progress and advance. And Paul was their key man. And so so Paul writes Philippians as a thank you letter to the church for their financial support. And he gives them a report about how he's doing. And, you know, they're worried that he can't get out and start churches and preach and establish Christian communities. And they're concerned that there's no progress being made. That Paul's days are wasting away in a cramped, rented house while being clamped to a crusty Roman guard. But here's the deal. It just wasn't any Roman guard. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 speaks of the whole imperial guard. Literally, the whole praetorian the Praetorian. Remember the movie Gladiator? 
when the Praetorian surrounded Caesar, they had those soldiers with the purple cloth on their armor. The Praetorian, the imperial guard of Caesar himself. In Rome, the imperial guard consisted of 9,000 highly trained warriors sworn to live and die at Caesar's command. I mean, you combined West Point and Secret Service training, combined special forces and, and Navy SEALs, you put all that together and you've got Caesar's elite crack troops. These highly intelligent, highly skilled fighters and defenders and bodyguards. And they would serve Caesar for 12 years, after which many of them would leave their positions very well-connected and very well-networked with wide-open opportunities in business and politics, the Senate, etc. Paul is chained to one of those guards every six hours. Think about it. Every six hours, a highly trained, physically fit, mentally tough Roman Praetorian guard is tethered to the world's most successful evangelist. (laughs) It's no contest. (laughs) That's why Paul says that what has happened has been for the progress of the gospel. It's interesting. The Praetorian guard saw those chains on that prisoner as evidence of Caesar's power. Those chains were Caesar's chains. Those chains proved that Caesar was Lord. Those chains fastened the captive to Caesar's prison in order to fulfill Caesar's will. But not for Paul. For him... Those chains were proof of Christ's power in Paul's life. Those chains confirmed Paul's citizenship in Christ. Those chains were worn because Paul proclaimed the true emperor of the universe. Not Nero in Rome, but the resurrected son of God who's making all things new. Those chains were Paul's friends. Those chains were Paul's friends. And so that guard gets off duty. It goes back to his quarters. He's scratching his head. Why do they got that little guy chained up? I don't get it. He, on trial for sedition, (laughs) he's not dangerous. He really believes the news about this Jesus from Israel who was crucified. He says he's risen from the dead. He really believes that this Jesus is emperor of the universe. Says he's even seen him himself. But the guy speaks and acts. I mean, he doesn't blink. He doesn't blink one bit. after interacting with him, makes me wonder. It feels so real. I think that's why Paul says in verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. That's progress. And then you see there's this ripple effect that's going on. Paul's courage to speak up for Christ in his difficult situation has now motivated other believers in Rome to speak up for Christ in their not-so-difficult situation. Verse 14. 
And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That's progress. Progress in the most difficult situation. You know, sometimes I think that we, you know, dream about ideal situations and circumstances that would give us ideal opportunities to to share Jesus. And we think, you know, God, if I, you know, if I only had this position or if I only had this, you know, level in my company or if I only had this particular degree of success, then that would really serve as a platform and that would amplify the message of the gospel for you. And you know what? That may well be. That may well be, yes. But then, you know, that ideal thing doesn't come along. And instead, we end up feeling like we're in chains and we get frustrated, discouraged, maybe even angry with God because we want to do much, so much for him with this ideal situation that we want to be in and it's not turning out and God, where are you? And, and you know, we feel chained. We are chained to you fill in the blank. Some of you feel chained to your desk Chained to your career. Maybe chained to poor health. Chained to to chemotherapy. Chained to dialysis. Or chained to your past. To your hurt. Or your habit. Or your hang-up. We ask God, why? why? Why am I chained here? And if we're reading this and hearing this, then we're hearing God say through Paul, these chains, these chains are your friend. They're your friend. You're in a situation where I'm going to use to bring people into your world to give you an opportunity to speak about me and suffer like me. And to show the difference that I make in the life of a hurting, weak person. Now, I want someone like you to be a witness for me. I want someone whose courage will encourage others to share Christ. I want someone who will conduct themselves with such excellence that their lives are contagious. Will you be that person? Will you? God's asking each of us that. And it's like kind of we're waiting for someone else to speak up. No, God is saying, I want you to speak up. Because if you will just do that, that's going to have an effect. Because some of those guards became Christians. Oh, yes. Yeah, we learned that in Philippians chapter 4, verses 21 and 22. Last few verses of Paul's letter to the Philippians, Paul says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. Then he says this, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. There it is. That's progress. The gospel has the power to make unstoppable progress in the middle of the most undesirable situations. Isn't that good? Isn't that exciting? It is. But not to everybody. No, that gets us to the obnoxious people here in these verses, right? You, you would think that Paul's situation would gain sympathy from others, and some did, but not everyone. 
some believers and pastors in Rome, they just, they just weren't all happy with Paul. They criticized him. What's it say about a guy who's on trial for his life? What's it say about the testimony of Christianity if uh, the preacher is charged with sedition and incitement to rebellion? What's that say about him and his message? And, you know, in the first century, it was a highly risky thing in an honor-shame culture to associate with someone who was in legal trouble, who was in prison. And some preachers in Rome were just outright jealous of Paul. Preachers, mind you. There was a spirit of rivalry going on here. But Paul didn't worry about heart motives, their heart motives. He wasn't bothered by their character. I mean, he didn't concern himself with, with how their self-centered motives or activities made him look. Or he just, Paul wasn't going to go there. Paul knew that the gospel had power beyond the selfish motives of the preacher. Paul knew that. And so, so, he doesn't really say much, does he? He just says, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing it's here. That I, that's, that's the reason I'm put for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. How does he respond? Ah, whatever. What then? Verse 18. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And that's why I will rejoice, he says. Paul's question, Paul's question was never, is what's happening to me fair? He doesn't even go there. His question, rather, is, is what's happening accomplishing the progress of the gospel? That's what I want to know. And Paul says it is, and so he concludes, in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. And here is where we begin to learn and discover the definition of biblical joy. And it's, it's this. Joy is not some self-satisfied delight that everything's going my way. That's not biblical joy. Biblical joy is the settled peace that comes from making the gospel the very focus of my life. That's biblical joy. Biblical joy has nothing to do with my, how I'm just feeling, you know? I mean, just about myself and I feel good because I just feel good. Well, yes, there's an emotion attached to joy, but that emotion is not a, is not a me-centered Biblical joy does not re reside in meville. It resides in the advance and the progress of the gospel. And that's why Paul says, I rejoice. Unstoppable gospel in the midst of, of undesirable circumstances and even obnoxious people. And you know why the gospel is unstoppable? This is where we get to the why. We talked about the how. Now the why. Paul is able to have this attitude because the unstoppable gospel announces the unstoppable one who is the very definition of life. And that's what we learn in the ensuing verses here. Here, here Paul tells us he's thought through the meaning of life. Verse 21, he's settled on the question, why am I here? What is my life about? What's my purpose? Have we, have we been able to just slow down enough to just ask that question? Are, are we too busy to even ask that question? Why am I here, Paul? 
Paul has settled it, and for him, Jesus is the very definition of his life. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Uh, uh, Literally, verse 21 reads, For to me, to live, Christ. To die, gain. The verb's not there. You can just kind of supply uh, for to me to live is Christ. Or for, for, for me, Christ fulfills my life. Christ supplies my life. Christ fuels my life. Paul's trying to tell us that everything he does, his trust, his love, his allegiance, his obedience, all these are fueled by Christ and accomplished for Christ. Jesus is my meaning in life. Jesus gives me direction in life. Jesus is my purpose. And, and, Jesus has shown Paul that this life is not all there is. There is life beyond this life. And so life with Christ doesn't end in death. In fact, death merely sweetens and enhances the love and fellowship and partnership with Jesus. Death cannot take me away from Christ. Death is gain. And, and so it's like in verses 22 and 23, Paul just, we get, we get a glimpse of Paul thinking out loud. Well, wow, if I had a choice, what would I choose? What would I choose? You know, to be with Christ and serve him here or to be with Christ in heaven? Verses 22 and 23, if I'm, if I'm to live in the flesh, why, that means fruitful labor for me. And yet, well, what shall I choose? I cannot tell him. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Listen, listen. Every one of us will one day depart. Every one of us will one day depart. That's That's not the question. The question is, when we depart, will we be with Christ? And Paul, that's settled with him. So, so he, he's not caught between a rock and a hard place here. He's just caught be, between two very passionate desires. Do I remain here in life and continue to preach and pastor and plant churches? Or can I just go be with Jesus in the heavenly realm? I'd really like to be with Jesus in heaven. I mean, that would be for my progress. And yet he says in verse 26, but I, I think God wants me to remain for your progress. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So how would you answer that to live is verse? How would you answer that? For me to live is pleasure. For me to live is beauty, money, my children, my vocation, you know, take it away. You don't have a reason for living. For me to live is... And, and then let me probe more deeply if I could. Because I think the challenge for many of us is, is... I think the challenge for many of us is not so much for me to live as pleasure, period. Or beauty, period. Or stuff, period. Our challenge is this. For us, for us, for me, my challenge is... To live is Christ plus fill in the blank, see? And so, you know, we live for Christ and something else. But I'm telling you, 
what happens, if we go that route, what's going to happen is that the plus factor becomes the primary factor and Jesus gets edged out because you cannot serve two masters. You can't. You love, love one, hate the other. Jesus himself says you've got to choose. So, you know, if your life is collapsing because your career is collapsing, then that means your career is your life. If your life is collapsing because your beauty is collapsing, then beauty is your life. If your life is collapsing because your assets are collapsing, then that's what your life is. Paul is saying that there is only one indestructible, unstoppable, non-collapsible definition in life And his name is Jesus. To live is Christ. Christ is the one thing that makes life, life for me. And if I have Christ, I am living regardless of where I am. Now, what does that look, what would that, what's that going to look like in our lives today? Well, well, to live is Christ. Would that have anything to do with realizing that everything I touch or experience doesn't belong to me for my use, but for God's use? To live as Christ, would that have anything to do with with not walking through life discontent with all the things I don't have, but living with a deeply felt gratitude for all the things I do have but don't deserve? To live as Christ, would that have anything to do with a life of hope and courage, not because I've established my own base of power, but because I rest in the power of God and the guaranteed success of everything he wants done. He who began a good work in you, his good work, will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. Now, you know, Paul can't plant a church. Paul goes, so what? It hasn't touched my life. I may not be able to preach to a crowd, but I can preach to a Roman guard. And I can't preach to a crowd for six hours, but I can preach to a guard for six hours. As Jack Bauer would say, this is going to be fun. (laughs) And so it was while Paul, it's while Paul was in prison here for two years that he just preached away to the Roman guards and anybody who came to that house. Acts 28, 16, 30, 31. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. He lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And you know, during that time, the Apostle Paul wrote four books of the New Testament that we have. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. These are called the prison epistles. So the irony was this, that because Christ was Paul's life, His influence for God expanded largely and spaciously even while he was confined to a small rented space for two years. Only Jesus could pull that off. To live as Christ, to live as Christ brings big kingdom living. And that's, listen, big kingdom living is not some mystical worship experience for the super spiritual. It's just street level Worship. It's, it's, it's about loving God more than I love preaching about God. 
It's about loving God more than the projects in my Dropbox. It's about caring more for his glory than my reputation. It's caring that his grace and his fame are more significant than than my next sale or my next promotion or an immaculate house or even a fun lunch with my friends. To live as Christ, it it means going about every moment of every day realizing that I am his ambassador. I'm an ambassador of an eternal kingdom. I'm his ambassador. I, I, I live and I work and I study and I learn and I love and I eat and I drink and I work out and I ride my bicycle and I brush my teeth as a representative of the one true unstoppable king. What Paul is telling us is that when Christ is your life, wherever you are, is an opportunity for unstoppable gospel progress. That's what this says. And I don't know who said this, but I sure like it, and I want you to hear it. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die's been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by presence, lean by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions few. My guide reliable. My mission clear. I can't be bought compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander at the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, back up, let up, or shut up until I've preached up, prayed up, paid up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, and I must go on till he returns, give until I drop, and preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he comes for his own, he will have no trouble recognizing me. My colors will be clear. For more information about Central Illinois Pinnacle Forum and our resources, go to pfcentralillinois.com.